thanks for listening in. This is episode 49 of Poetry Says. My name's Alice, and today's guest is a Melbourne poet originally from the UK um, by the name of Gemma Mahadeo. And she's brought a poem in called Calypso History Lesson. This is a poem by another UK poet called Fred Daguia. And it's a really interesting one because on the surface, it seems very simple, very straightforward. But as we go through it, we kind of go through stanza by stanza. And each, each stanza that we look at sends us off into a whole different direction, a whole different conversation. And so we end up talking about all kinds of things in this episode. We talk about the role of history and how that impacts us. We talk about place quite a bit. Um, we ended up talking about race and racism in the UK and here in Australia as well. Um, but we start off by talking a bit about another UK poet, Ted Hughes, and the influence of his poetry on Gemma, uh, particularly from the book Crow and sort of the role of animals in Ted Hughes' poetry. So whether you're really familiar with Ted Hughes and whether you have read Fred DeGuire's poetry before or not, I think there'll be something in this episode for you. Enjoy. So my name's Gemma and my mum was born in the Philippines. My dad was born in Guyana. Which a lot of people in Australia tend to think is Ghana. It might also be my pronunciation and also talking so quietly. And then um, they met in London, had me and my brother. So I spent mm, the first eight years of my life over in London, where where I was born. Mm -hmm. And then we moved out over here. It wasn't until my brother studied the longest memory I think a small um, a novella of of Fred's that I'd heard that this poet existed I was especially drawn to him because it says he was born in London in 1960 of Guyanese parents he grew up in Guyana but then returned to London and trained as a psych nurse yeah um, yeah I read that as well I thought that was really fascinating but then he gave so that up to yeah. Start doing academia, but then his Wikipedia page says he um, was the wording is quite hilarious. Said he his PhD receded from his mind <laughs> as he started focusing on creative writing. I thought that's really lovely. Um, yeah, so both my parents are trained as psych nurses, really. Yeah, wow, the parallels are coming thick and fast. It's it amazing. It was pretty eerie. The yeah. uh, the poet that sent me this copy, he sent it to me while I was in hospital. Um, I'm not ashamed to admit, in a private psych ward for depression. All right. And Dan Ryder, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for this book. I love you. Aww, that's <laughs> awesome. Um, so, so via a Yorkshire poet, Dan Ryder, I came to a poet who was writing, I guess, in what I would classify my dad's English. Okay. So, I don't know if um, one of the parallels I try to bring to people is it, West Indian English, it sounds a lot more musical than British, some British English and some Australian English. 
um, if you've ever listened to any or had to suffer through the co- cricket commentary. I love cricket commentary. It's, it's oh, West something... Indians, they could just be talking about abs- absolute, watching watching ice melt and it would just, it's just so lyrical. So lilting. I'm going to find some and put it in right here. Let's see Carlos Brathwaite. I said he was a superstar on the construction. The foundation has been laid. it it really is it's just um yeah i'm so sorry dad i'm a really bad west indian child i did not like cricket growing up no me either really really boring forced down my throat it was really really hot and there was only one tv and when dad wanted to watch the cricket he got to watch the cricket and the rest of us just sat there and sort of didn't understand why it wasn't so actiony um it's only in the last couple of years I've started to understand why that's so appealing. It's so peaceful. It is so peaceful. <laughs> I didn't actually understand it until I, I worked with a couple of guys and they took me down to the bar underneath their office and they put a beer in my hand and they were like, sit, watch. And I was like, oh, you have to be slightly tipsy. <laughs> I didn't understand. No, no one's watching this sober. <laughs> so, yeah, cricket is a mystifying thing but it's it's fascinating to me how there's this game that is so deeply important to both like to the English to Australians to West Indians to Pakistanis like there's something quite beautiful about that I think I think they're also united by the heat it's just right certain temperature where you can't do anything but just sort of be a beached whale yeah it's so hot. That's that's how it felt when we first arrived in Australia. I thought, oh wow, this place is just ridiculously hot. Did you move to Melbourne first, or yeah, yeah, right? Melbourne summer can be absolutely brutal. Yeah, especially when it only just stopped snowing in London. Yeah, right. Um, I, so I don't think it snows there anymore in winters. Correct me yeah, if I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. but um, it's yeah, but then there are days like this which just remind me a lot of how it's crisp and clean but still quite warm if you're walking briskly yeah yeah and um i yeah so um finding out that this poet had trained as a psych nurse was pretty wow um and then Dan sent me the book um as part of a care package i was reading the words in my head so when I, when I read poetry, I, I also write poetry, but when I read it, I guess I imagine what my voice sounds like in my head, um, reading out aloud the words. Yep. And with this particular poet, there are times when he sounds very um, British English, and then there are times where he loses that and it sounds, sounds like dad, my dad talking or um, when he's telling us a story about back home. Yeah, um, yeah, I noticed that a little bit in reading a few poems to prepare to chat to you. There are these moments where traditional grammar starts to break down. Yep. And it seems um, completely intentional. But yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to like dig into it's why also, he does that. It's very gradual as well. Mm-hmm. So he starts, um, starts off sounding really clinical, his descriptions of nature and animals are very very visceral really 
things you, you can imagine are there right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's one poem later in this book, The Rose of Toulouse, uh, where he's taking a night swim and talking about how his body hits the water and how cold the water is as and how he feels it against his skin. Oh, wow. And I was thinking he sort of reminds me of Ted Hughes' early work where he is very visceral in his descriptions of animals. So um, that's also one of the reasons why I brought Crow. Uh-huh. Um, Crow's hilarious because if Crow were a person, um, they would be the kind of person that would constantly stuff up, get things wrong, just not notice certain things that, that are staring them in the face. But it's also in a very distant way. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, Ted Hughes has that sort of properness, whereas Fred talks more about um, the body and the images and how they affect the body as mm. well. Yeah, but yeah, it feels yeah. more personally involved. Yeah, I noticed that. I haven't read Crow, um, which is a huge hole. Like, I think everybody's read that, but I've only read Birthday Letters and um, just hated it and felt very, uh, yeah, like I didn't know the poet behind it very well at all. I yeah. was like, where are you? Come on, stop hiding. <laughs> that's oh, how yeah. I felt while I was reading it. So yeah, that's it's really illuminating. You put it that way. That's so Fred stuff is more em- embodied, I suppose. Even though yeah. there is that like properness, as you say, in both. Um, yeah, there's say crow color. Crow color. Do you mind if I read this? No, not at all. Okay, crow color. Crow was so much blacker than the moon's shadow. He had stars. He was as much blacker than any Negro as a Negro's eye pupil, even like the sun, blacker than any blindness. It's 1972. Hmm. Those are nine very mystifying lines. I didn't really know what to do there. (laughs) They're very impersonal, though. They're beautiful images, but I... Don't really feel like he, he's talking about this thing that's living and breathing, but he's talking about it like it's an object. Well, yeah, I mean, Crow was so much blacker, so Crow is Crow, not, not even any article there, so it's like Crow, this amorphous Crow thing was, so it's, it's like even more removed because it was in the past. Um, yeah, that middle stance is pretty uncomfortable too. Much blacker than any Negro. <laughs> so. Yeah, wow, I'd forgotten mm. about that one. <laughs> I don't know about that. And then a poem by Fred. There's a sequence in this book um, from American Vulture. Mm-hmm. So it's so actually on the same page as the... Oh, Calypso History Lesson, which yep. we're going to look at. Do you want to read this one? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll do cool. my best. Um, so this is from <laughs> American Vulture, cool. the Vulture Goddess. In ancient Egypt, she guards tombs with talons of steel, her red apron of regurgitated food for her young. The couples look alike, exactly alike. Feathers hide everything. The children all sound the same in a playground of shrieks. A carcass splayed out in the open waits to be picked clean. 
The line down the centre of a road is white and red and full of flesh. The birds rise up to avoid traffic and drop back to feed in the wake. They keep half an eye on the road and half on target for beak and feet. Think of them as operators of a laundromat where every item gradually disappears to leave clean space robbed of bad smells. Think how our path would be if we had to wait on the slower work of worms, deaf, without nostrils, indifferent to us, some taped in us until we fall in their blind path and thank these gods in our midst. Mm, yeah, see, that gives me all kinds of very visceral feelings, especially that last section. What was it? Worms, deaf, and without nostrils, yeah. indifferent to us, some taped in us. Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> it, I, I hope that also refers to the intestines being worm-like. Oh, yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah. There's a lot of intestine in yeah, us. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we don't think about it until... Well, I guess we don't think about it until we've got gastro. Yeah, and then we think about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> or until, like, maybe you have a caesarean, then you're probably thinking about it. Or, yep. Um, there's that, that Buddhist practice where they get the monks to like meditate on their internal organs until they, apparently the story goes that they, this was a meditation that went horribly wrong and the monks just all killed themselves because they were like, oh, I'm so disgusting on the inside. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's meant to like detach them from their body, but it just went a bit too far. Um, anyway, that's a, that's a sidetrack. But yeah, I can, I can see the, the parallels there, but also... That, that poem is much more that hits you much more directly there's no he's not standing back looking at the poem he's there with us mm. he, I, I'm, I think I also like the inclusiveness I like that he's he's there with us the humans are there with the vultures or the birds um, coexisting in a space that's made for neither mm. Mm. yeah it's really beautiful mm. it's funny the Ted Hughes thing like I I uh, I think it's probably very fashionable to dislike Ted Hughes um, and still to like pick a side and be like, no, no, I'm on, I'm team Sylvia. But I think the reason, I don't know if you would agree with this, but like the reason we can be so um, mean to Ted Hughes is because he's just so great. Like he's clearly like a master, right? Like, so we can be like, <laughs> ah, I hate you. Um, yeah. I I think um, I prefer his poetry to Sylvia's, despite the fact that I think that she's more tal- she was more talented than him. Mm. There's just she has ways of saying things that he would not ever be able to. He wouldn't do it the same way. And it's interesting what you mentioned before about birthday letters because that's some of the more, most personal stuff that he's ever committed in poetic form I know right so I shouldn't have I shouldn't have that feeling that he'd like he's standing back but I still felt like he was protecting himself because I kind of knew vaguely like what the subject matter was yeah I didn't even I hadn't researched it before I read it and then as I went through I was like this all seems to be about the same person (laughs) I read about it I was like oh my god see I didn't I didn't pick it up Uh, even through yeah it took me until the end of the book to kind of realize what was going on so I really didn't like birthday letters that much. You didn't like it either? No. Um, the Hawk in the Rain, Crow and Lupercal, or Lup- uh, named after Lupercalia. Um, those are 
his early work is the stuff of his that I really dig because mm -hmm. of the animals and yeah again even though it seems like such a clinical portrayal of uh, even thinking about the thought fox the poem the thought fox there's a line in there where he mentions the um, the smell of foxes in heat mm. and how it's really quite disgusting it's mm -hmm. gross but that's one of the few times I feel like I'm no longer just reading this you can feel that just how much these foxes in heat stink yeah right so he gets that across yeah despite his clinical viewpoint when so you left the UK when you were nine or ten eight eight yep. okay so um, our family came over here in 87 okay and so you grew up did you grow up in in London did you say yeah okay and so when you're reading Ted Hughes, do you feel like you have a connection to the animals and the land that he's writing about? Um, maybe the forest, yeah. Okay. yeah. That, so the way our backyard was in England was there was this tiny bit of concrete um, garden beds. Then there's a wall. And then on that wall, above that wall, was an actual forest, which oh. we weren't allowed to go into because of foxes. Um, and also because of um, perverts, my dad said. <laughs> Which is a good reason not to go into them. Yeah. <laughs> That's an excellent reason. Yeah. Um, and so I guess as a child, being taken away from a forest that you're not allowed to play in, there's always wondering what, what was it like there. Mm. And I haven't been back to it yet. I think, I hope before I die, I get to go back into that forest. Right, I hope you do too, for sure. Yeah, I used to love seeing. Um, we got to live in London for a little while last year, and I, I used to just get so excited to see urban foxes just <laughs> hanging around, you know, doing their thing in the kind of early evening, and thinking these guys just have a whole secret network. They're just living this totally um, secret life right here in the city. It was really amazing to me. I don't know, it's so interesting to, to look at Ted Hughes from an Australian perspective and think about, like, um, what is there for an Australian reader here? Like, is is there anything... Because it is so much about, like, the British landscape and British animals. And that's the thing that I, I kept thinking about reading Fred as well, is um, how this is, this is very... Uh, it's very much of a particular place, a particular history... But then I would be surprised there would be these lines that would jump out at me and immediately connect with me and I would just feel like, oh, you know, he's, he's seen the same thing as I have. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, for instance, the walk in the country, feel mud, suck your toes. Yeah, that's a lovely line from this Calypso history lesson. Why don't we have a look at this one now? Yep. Let's dive into it. Um, do you want to read it? Um, yeah, I, um, I'll read it with my, my voice, obviously, but when I, when I hear it in my head, there's a, a way I hear it, does yeah, that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah cool. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Calypso history lesson. Son, kick off your shoes and come back with me. So there's an instance where I would, oh, that's it's not yeah. come, but come, but... Mm -hmm. It feels it feels unauthentic to say that, even though that's how I hear it in my head. Yeah. Um, son, kick off your shoes and come back with me. 
to what some call bush, what I know as country, where land fenced by thick forest and deep sea, and each day starts without the curse of history. History cannot get a grip in that unfettered place. History you wake up with, just rinse your face. History binds your sleep, straps a clock around your waist. Penitence to history is our people's biggest waste. The luck of youth is the joy to start from scratch. Just when the burden of history strike a match and move on in in a merry jaunt, not a frog march. Shirt neck fling open, no tie in stiff starch. Walk in the country, feel mud suck your toes. Breathe, see how fresh air stings your city nose. Take in the philosophy that nature's art shows without an invoice or price tag, without a boast. I lost the same thing in this capital's streets of bare knuckles, spit and bared teeth. My body jacked by trainers on my feet. History handcuffed me and sharp teeth. The country realigns your sorry backbone. The country is the place your spine calls home. You come to the country when you're dead and gone. Then, only then, history content to leave you alone. Mm. That makes much more sense hearing you read it. There's a couple of lines that had mystified me that make a little more sense now. Yeah, so for instance, only then history content to leave you alone. Um, there I think what they do is the what we would call an elision. So you, um, you alone. Um, so it, it um, because it's two vowels. I know I know you can do this in French. Um, you would do the thing where you sort of drop the a, and then it becomes a yeah comma, loan. So leave you loan. Leave you loan. Yeah. So it's um sense. yeah. And the same with in the second last line, dead and gone, dead and gone, dead and gone. Yeah, it fits much more easily. Yeah. Um, that last line when I first read it, felt quite uncomfortable because the rhythm is just that little bit off. Yeah. But then if you read it to a particular rhythm that you have in your head, it makes much more sense, but it doesn't come out the way you would think it would come out. So as in, if you, so yeah, it's the, the way I hear um, the first line, son, kick off your shoes and come back with me. Oh, uh, yep. There's just, it's almost sort of, yeah. Actually, I should get my dad to read this for me, read it out for me one day. That'd be great. Yeah. And um, the second last stanza, the last line, history handcuffed me and shout teeth. I think that's definitely what, um, yeah, that's how I hear it in my head. Mm. But mm. When, I, when I try to say it, it sounds really silly. Or recite it out aloud, it, sounds, it doesn't sound quite right to my mouth even though it sounds perfectly right to my head. Mm. No, I thought it sounded, I mean, I don't really know what I'm listening for, but I thought it sounded really, really good. Um, yeah, I love the rhyme in it. I love that it begins with the word sun. Yeah. So it's kind of like this, the fact that it's this A-A-A-A-B-B-B-B. Um, and I don't know if it's perfectly uh, syllabic, but the lines are mostly of a similar length. Mm-hmm. It gives us gives it almost a primary school esque like the kind of poem that you might learn to recite as a student. Um, Hence the title. Yeah, Calypso history lesson. <laughs> um, yeah, and I read a, an interview with 
Fred where he said something about this word history being so fraught and how um, history is always uh, put above story. But he said, um, reading journalism, I always come to a point where I feel this desire for facts to give way to invention. So he's kind of saying, well, history is all well and good, but, and I feel like that's kind of the message of this poem too. It's like history is, is more of a curse than anything else. Yeah. Um, I also like that this, this has the feeling of someone sitting down with an elder telling a story. So you're actually listening to a story that someone's telling you, um, rather than learning about history in a book mm. where there's a timeline and there are facts mm. and these things have happened. It's actually, at, so yeah, at the beginning, part of the lesson is, well, you know, sit back, relax. I'm going to tell you a story. I don't know where the story is going to go, but that's actually the nature of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this place which is, um, starts without the curse of history. Um, yeah, and in that first stanza, he's got these three words which are really interesting, again, from an Australian reader perspective. He's got, to what some call bush, what I know is country, we're land fenced by thick forest and deep sea. It's almost like a Dorothea McKellar-esque jewel sea thing coming in there for me. So, and, Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, yeah, that's just a strange parallel that came to my mind. But I like how even in that one stanza, he's kind of addressing these three ways that people can talk about the place that they're from or their land, their country or the bush. Um, but it's a completely different context, right? It's like, it's definitely not an Australian context. Or, or um, yeah, or not an Anglo-Australian. That's country. right. Yeah. 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 The, the other thing that strikes me about that line now that you've just mentioned, Dorothea McKellar is that, so Guyana is considered part of the Caribbean, but it's one of the few bits of the Caribbean that's not an island. Right. So it's on the coast of South America, mm-hmm. whereas the West Indies is an actual group of islands. So, yeah, the, um, the Caribbean is, well, the land that for, the islands are actually fenced by sea. Right. If okay. not forest. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Land fenced by thick forests and deep sea. So he's definitely talking about Guyana here. I, I feel like that that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can, we can agree on that. <laughs> um, then the second stanza, history cannot get a grip in that unfettered place. The history you wake up with just rinse your face. I love that image of just like you wake up with, these ideas and all you've got to do is just rinse your face it's so simple to get rid of it it's not yep. it's not clogging you up in any way but then he has this great line history binds your sleep straps straps a clock around your waist um yeah that, that straps a clock around your waist thing made me think of like somebody being rigged up with explosive is yep. that is that what you thought of um that definitely would have been a concern in the UK at the time of the IRA bombings. Right. So there's there's that, but there's also the, just the, the more sort of nine to five, tighten your belt. Oh, that makes sense too. Yeah. yeah. At least, yeah, that's it. So wanting to fit in with that lifestyle, but knowing that it's not something that necessarily 
that we necessarily want to do. Mm. But you have to do it if you want to put food on the table type thing. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes me think differently too about that. The previous clause, history binds your sleep. Because I was thinking of that because I had one of those nights last night where I was just like awake for (laughs) hours. And um, yeah, thinking about your sleep being kind of corrupted by memory and what you keep thinking about. But also... Yeah, it could also be it like a history gives time this linearity. It means like you have to go to sleep at this time and get up at this time and it kind of binds you into this like very, I don't know, like a straitjacket type thing. Which is funny because dreams don't often follow. I mean, they are, they exist in linear time, but they, they don't follow no the scale that yeah dreams no, are hilarious right. that way <laughs> yeah yeah well i had this dream last night where I, uh, it's one of my recurring dreams someone's heard and i call an ambulance and the ambulance just takes forever like an impossibly long time and i'm just like signaling them i'm calling them back my phone won't work one of those kind of like yeah running forever getting nowhere type dreams um Anyway, yeah, then the last line of that stanza, penitence to history is our people's biggest waste. What do you make of that line? I had to look up the word penitence. It's one of those words I thought, oh, yeah, I know what this word is. And I didn't know. But apparently it means regret or like showing sorrow for the past. Yeah, so that's something that's celebrated a lot in Western culture in terms of um, anniversaries. Um maybe with the British Empire and the things it had to do in order to get to the stage that of, I guess, what they conceive, conceive of as powerful or rich, mm-hmm. probably didn't do very, very nice things to get there, and such as um, slavery. Mm. and yeah other horrible things and I guess just colonizing countries I think he's saying that that what it feels like he's saying it's it's all well and good to be sorry but what are you going to do you can either choose to act on the knowledge that yeah I'll never be able to fix how horrible things were in the past but I'm going to try and live a good life and be a better person than my ancestors and that's the best I can do for the future Mm. yeah so rather than being bound by history as in the previous line like that's a waste that's just a fairly useless way to spend your time one of the things um I talk to specifically to friends who are also writers and people of color is that there's not shame but it's sometimes very difficult to navigate having the, had the privilege of, for instance, university education. So I studied arts and music, mm-hmm. um, which is disciplines that I think are not always looked upon in, in some uh, non-Anglo cultures as bringing home the bacon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in but in yeah sort of white culture it's like that's very 
you know, it's very cultured, very kind of, yeah. like, there's, there's something prized about that. It, it feels much more acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it's also when, when you're from a background where you need to eat and sleep and do those things, it, it, it's a, I guess, they're not, they're not looked, as, looked upon as luxuries, then it feels like they're indulgences. Oh, so okay. arts, yeah, yeah. Um, creative pursuits as indulgences, mm. um, as opposed to, I know a lot of um, Anglo-Indians might identify with the, you've, you've got to get a great education, you've got to get good scores, and then you've got to go to uni and become a doctor. But not everyone can become doctors because if everyone is made up of university trained doctors and then graduates at exactly the same time, it's good that we have all these doctors and we also need people that see the world in other ways type thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I guess what, what you're saying is there is like that penitence to history, that kind of being tied to a certain way of looking at the world where um, having your basic needs met is the primary goal and to do that you need to excel and you need to go into these very secure yep. jobs. That's a kind of being bound to history and that's in, in some ways becomes a waste because you have all these people striving. Is that kind of what you mean? or Yeah, yeah. so there's, there's that and they... I guess they're doing what they think will make their parents and their grandparents happy, but they might not be happy pursuing those things. Mm, and mm. then by the time they realise that it's, um, well, ca- po- technically I think we're in a post-capitalist society, but it's it's a pretty... It's a pretty poor excuse for yeah. a post-capitalist society. <laughs> it's, but yeah. it's still a society that really burns out. Well, working culture still gets really, really burnt out quickly. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah, I had my own little taste of burnout a couple of years ago working in an office job, and it wasn't it wasn't major in any way, but it was. It got real. It got very real. I'd so yeah. I I find I wish I were more accustomed to that in a way because I part of me feels guilty for not wanting or for for having those sorts of jobs as options but then also at the same time I do burn out quite quickly when, oh, yeah. when I'm in them yeah it's yeah as you said it's just it's not but you know you get you all these things are reliable you get paid at a particular time to do particular tasks but then you wake up one day and then you might not be able to work for a month because you're just exhausted in every possible way that's not healthy yeah i mean i oh god i got so much to say on this topic but i was (laughs) was talking to a friend of mine about this just last night because we the two of us are very much like life is more important than work but we have close friends for whom excelling earning a certain number of thousand dollars a year is like that's literally the goal doesn't really matter how you get there yeah and it's very hard to understand that um and to empathize with that because I don't know having kind of gone a little way down that road it just it just leads nowhere like there's no tangible outcome I guess but but to step away from it you got to get you got to 
go against the grain of what everyone in society is telling you like yeah after I quit my job I would go out during the day I'd be out at like 9:30 a.m being like someone's gonna like this I can't do this <laughs> what am I doing out here I'm wasting my life you know when in reality the waste was sitting at the keyboard you know at 2 p.m on a Tuesday like tapping out yet another email or like sitting through yet another meeting that was the wasteful thing but I felt like I was more in the wrong to be outside looking at a tree or like whatever getting a coffee something yeah. like that when everyone else was in the office so yeah it's hard to go against the grain bottom line there um so the next stanza the luck of youth is the joy to start from scratch just find the burden of history strike a match and move on in a merry jaunt not a frog march oh i like this bit shirt neck fling open no tie and stiff starch when I first read that, I thought, oh, shouldn't it be flung? But then when you read it, I realized, oh, maybe this is actually a bit of kind of a, a dialect, not dialect, but like that sort of language that you were talking about. Yeah, that um, when I was reading that out aloud to myself, it also tripped me up on the pronunciation because, yeah, it, you think it's going to sound a, or be spelt a particular way and then it's, it isn't. Um, that's actually a really nice stanza because it addresses the well yeah we can still wear history and we still have what happened in the past and we can also have that and we can also carry and make new things yeah the joy to start from scratch yep no so time. casual fridays every day casual Friday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, i don't miss worrying about what i'm wearing today that was another giant waste of time. And, um, <laughs> what about the next one? Do you want to read that one? Walk in the country, feel mud, suck your toes, breathe. See how fresh air stings your city nose. Take in the philosophy that nature's art shows without an invoice or price tag, without a boast. So that's... Um, I think that's yeah. I mean, he's in the country, the yeah, the country, and the or the subject of the poem is now experiencing. I hope the not city, mm. and it is very different when the air is polluted and horrible, and then you go out to the country from the the change is really quite. It's really noticeable, yeah. I am. Um, yeah. I'd never read it put that way before. Stings your like fresh air stings your nose, but as soon as I read it, I was like, yes, that's exactly right. You know, do you, have you noticed that when you leave Melbourne and you just like, take this deep breath, and you're like, oh. Especially with the, the cold air as well. Yeah. That's when it feels wonderful to actually have lungs full of clean air. Yep. It feels really weird as well. <laughs> yeah, you get a little bit high for a moment. Um, <laughs> I love the last line, uh, the last couple of taking in the philosophy that nature's art shows without an invoice or price tag and without a boast. I really like that without a boast. It's because I always think of that, well, that, what that made me think of was people going on holiday to like Vietnam or Bali or whatever, and they're, yeah. they're literally just like 
you, you know, when you when you travel, you see people who are traveling with the phone in front of their face, like the the entire thing is being like live streamed to somebody back home. Yep. And it's like that, yeah, that boasting. Um, Doesn't meeting. really leave much time for personal enjoyment of why you're there in the first place. No, I mean it's. I don't know. I always look at those people and I think, well, look, hopefully later on they're going to put the phone down and look at the sunset, but I don't know. I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure that that happens. So, yeah, that's a really beautiful stanza. It's it's funny, though, because after this point, I think the poem starts to take a turn and starts to get a little bit darker. Um, do you want to read the next bit? Yeah. Um, I lost the same thing in this capital streets of bare knuckles spit and bared teeth. My body jacked by trainers on my feet. History handcuffed me and shout teeth. So it sounds, it sounds like someone might have been bashed for being dark. I know in London, in the UK, that there is sometimes that, that parallel where if you're dark, it's assumed that you might mug someone. Whereas, yeah, you could actually be one of those people who's just just happens to be walking down the street, just enjoying, mm. or going to get the paper or something, and yeah, a lot more street violence. In, I'm not sure if it's that it's more reported in Australia now, but it it seems like in the UK racially motivated violence was just constantly in the news it was just always something that it not to the point where it was a a regular um something that you would get used to never Mm -hmm. but everybody knew had or had this understanding that it just always happened whereas in australia it seems more i guess it's usually reported as just people being drunk on the streets Oh, right, okay, so there's not that narrative of um, this This happened and this were, these were the nationalities of the people involved. Yeah. It's just like drunk people. Um, so you remember that kind of reporting from when, even when you were a child living over there? Yeah, um, I remember walking to school and Anglo-Indian parents and children yelling quite not-so-nice racial terms um, racist terms at me and my brother just because we weren't as dark as them. That's another really odd one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I talked about this with one of my previous guests, actually, and, and she introduced me to the term lateral violence, which I'd never heard of before, but it makes complete sense. It's like there's a certain point at which the oppressor just steps away and lets the, the oppressed kind of yep. do that work. That was pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's, um, I didn't realise there was even a, t- a term for it. It's, yeah, it's almost in relation, it happens in relation to they've most likely seen their parents go through that and they don't want to go through it so they become part of it. Mm, taking control of it, yeah. Wow, wow. Do you think that's something that still goes on today in... The part of London where where you were living, um, I hope not. I would, mm. I would think not. Um, yeah. Mm. I know. Um, when when we were there, it was just after they had the Brexit vote, 
uh, as before and after. And yeah, there was this, again, it's a little bit, well, it's not hard to tell. It, it seemed pretty obvious that immediately after they voted leave, everyone who was a racist just took that as like tacit permission to just do whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was so shocking. So, so shocking. And it made me really scared um, because I really didn't think of the UK as a particularly racist place. Like I know Aussies, we have a terrible reputation for being racist. And I didn't have, like I didn't go to the UK thinking that's going to be here as well. But it made me think, oh God, you know, if this same kind of narrative works, works its way into our political like even more so if there's a moment in Australia where people who are already thinking along these lines get permission it's it's going to be the same like I've wanted to have confidence that it wouldn't be but just seeing seeing and hearing all these stories I was like yeah this is it's there you know and I wish I wish I could deny that but yeah is that yeah. Does that ring true for you? Or? Um, I think a lot of people felt that once Pauline Hansen became more, or started to get more vocal coverage, yeah. all of a sudden people that I, I didn't necessarily think of as racist were actually quite racist. And then if they knew you already, um, there they would be comments like, but you're not really one of them. Really? This, that was something that was said to you in recent memory? Um, yeah. Um, oh, God. Think, things along that line. Or, Jesus Christ. Um, a few weeks ago at a table, a man said, that Asian lady, and everyone on the table knew who he meant and who he was referring to, but I reminded him. I said, well, actually, I'm an Asian lady and you're sitting right next to me. And... Yeah, as you can imagine, that made me lots of friends. Good on you for saying it, though. He looked really, really uncomfortable because there was the, yeah, but you're not that kind of Asian, by which then I would have replied, what do you mean, what kind of Asian? Oh, God. (laughs) It sucks that you have to do that kind of work at a dinner table, like the can't just have dinner. Yeah. Thankfully, I, I, I can say that, yeah, people that I call or consider friends are not like that. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't even know how to think about it sometimes because, I mean, when I was at uni doing a degree which was uncomfortably called Asian Studies, which is Japanese, Mandarin, all this kind of stuff, um, uh, yeah, we were studying Hansen as like a relic of the past. <laughs> this is in like 2000 and for um we were reading articles about like oh the 90s the dark days you know things were so bad then because Hanson was around and I'm just every time she rears her head I'm just like go away you're just why are you still here but then the the Brexit experience and then being in the U.S. for Trump it's like yeah um I'm starting to understand even more so like I was suspected that I lived in a little privileged bubble but now I'm just like oh yes I am I'm in a bubble and there's a whole (laughs) other world going on outside this bubble which is which is different and yeah sometimes I'm just at a loss as to how to how to address it but 
Yeah, I don't know. It's when we're all starting to see things in very stark contrast, it feels like sometimes. It's, yeah. yeah. It's not pretty. So back to the poem. Where does he go from there? Uh, the country realigning your sorry backbone. The country is the place you call home. So where is home? Yeah, this, this stanza has me mystified, I have to admit. Oh, and yeah. I, I think for that reason, I think he's he's saying as well, I, I, at least I hope he's saying, because it, he's asking um, where... Where does he belong? Where does he call home? Yeah. Is it literally just the place that you were born in? Is it a yeah? Is it a birthplace? Is it somewhere where you spend an amount of time? I um, consider myself to have lived in three different countries. Um, in I lived in the Philippines when I was four for just over a year, mm-hmm. and that doesn't really ever go away. Um, a lot of people are still surprised that I remember as much as I did from then. But I think one of the reasons why my memory of it was didn't fade was be, having to learn the language. Yeah, right, and that, that age <laughs> excellent, too. Excellent um, for the memory. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. And also it was much, much poorer than where I was born in London. So it was a real shock. Yeah. There. Yeah. And then when our family arrived here, it felt like that was, it was just so, so different. It was awesome. The houses seemed so much bigger. The back gardens, there were back gardens to play in. People had neighbours that they talked to and had barbecues with. The kills hoist, the, yeah, the, the line that you have to swing on. Yeah. and pretend are monkey bars at some stage of your life where you have not lived as a child properly, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get to that stage until it was house parties and pegging a, a bag of wine onto the hills. I've, um, yeah, I've never actually done that, but as, yeah, I think in my 20s I definitely tried to yeah ride the hills hoist because I felt, oh, well, I couldn't reach it as a child because I was so tiny. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, just affluence it was just so much more comfortable Mm -hmm. um economically speaking yeah 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 the space anytime i leave australia and and come back the space just absolutely shocks me yeah i'm like why do we each have this much room it's crazy (laughs) (laughs) no one else gets this much i mean the americans do they got plenty of room too but yeah (laughs) So the last two lines, you come to the country when you're dead and gone. This is where the grammar starts to break down as well. Yep. Um, only then history can tend to leave you alone. Yep. Um, dirt, we yeah. become ash and then we become part of the dirt only when we have fully scientifically decayed, maybe. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. And, that's, and then obviously with the loss of consciousness is the only time that... He, history leaves you alone as in it's no longer your burden to carry Mm. it's no longer something you're constantly thinking about so it's um yeah it's not a it's not a fun place to exist when you're sort of wondering oh gosh you know i can't really knock anglo culture because at the same time i benefit from it so much but then 
do I acknowledge that benefit and then or am I being a traitor to my true people if I choose to benefit from the, I think those are the sorts of um, questions generally that are posed and not answered no. in, in this poem and I think I hope he's saying it's okay that they're not necessarily answered but it's okay you're not alone you're not the only person that has these difficulties existing in these different cultures at the same time yeah absolutely yeah it's just doing what so many great poems do making space for the question and the uncertainty rather than giving you an answer tied up in a little bow yeah but it is fascinating how the first four stanzas are so kind of kick off your shoes, come back with me, you know, talking to his son in this very kind of optimistic way. And then the last two stanzas, he goes into this much darker space. Um, It's almost as if it's a little admission, like a parental admission once the children have gone to sleep, sort of over that glass of wine, like, oh, things are not that great, really. (laughs) (laughs) Or the, yeah, the not wanting the um, the child to grow up from that innocence, the bubble of innocence, because once they start to get older, they're going to realise that, yeah, when I was a grown-up, I was really just struggling too, type thing. Yeah. Uh, It's like that, have you ever seen that film American Beauty? Yep. Yeah, this is like the naffest thing ever to bring up an American Beauty reference, but there's a line in that film where uh, Kevin Spacey says, about his daughter like I want to tell her that it's all going to get better but I don't want to lie and I've always thought about that it's such a great way to sum up adulthood I wanted to ask you about your own writing as well is that Uh, okay? yeah of course it is (laughs) so uh, what's the deal poetry and you how does it work? Um, is it a happy union? um, I hope so I think so so I started off as a primarily training to be a classical musician so right. that's my background oh what instrument do you um play? flute oh beautiful oh, i used to play flute and it i've always wanted to go into music academia so i guess more the writing cool articles about music mm. um classical music or western classical music yeah and um just read more and more and Poetry seemed to be the, I guess, the thing that sort of reeled me into writing. Mm. And do you remember the first poem that you thought, "Oh no, maybe I got to do this too"? Um. Ooh. I wonder if it was something from. I think it might have been a Ted Hughes poem. I knew it, Ted Hughes. So uncool, though. Doing damage all over the place, Ted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know the line. It's something along the lines of, there is no sophistry in my body. My manners are tearing off heads. Oh, that's great. And after, yeah, (laughs) after those two lines, I thought, wow, that's so cool um, to think of an animal thinking that way or be portrayed in unapologetically just doing its thing because this is nature and when nature has to eat it's not necessarily very pretty it's going to tear off heads yep yeah 
so after that sort of just decided I'd try and write a bit more and then just kept doing it more and more and then you get to a stage where it just I guess yeah started to bring in influences such as things like the way my dad talks or how they can be phrases in Filipino and Tagalog that mm. when you translate them into English they sound ridiculous but at the same time there's no there's not quite an equivalent but sometimes the beauty is trying to search for the best way to represent that without losing the the feeling of the phrase that you're translating yeah that's one of my favorite things to do yeah I do that yeah. a lot in French yeah right which I kept up hoping um, yeah hoping that I would end up doing something related to musicology right and I'm really really glad I did because French as well is an amazing language to read poetry in oh wow so you can read yeah I've French. got to the stage now where um, I can even overhear French and it's kind of like listening to or hearing my mum talk in Tagalog mm -hmm. over the phone to relatives or something. Yeah, right. So, except, I guess, um, sorry mum, <laughs> but, but it's more with, if I hear my mum talking in Tagalog, there's a part of me that just snaps straight to attention because I'm thinking, <laughs> oh crap, what have I done now? <laughs> it's the language of discipline. Yeah, yeah. but um, she, she doesn't talk in Tagalog that much. She, her, I mean, God, her English is just... English is a language that I would not force upon anyone as a second language. I it completely must be so agree. hard. And having worked as an English language teacher, I have been that person standing at the front of the classroom saying, I'm not sure why we do it that way. I'm going to go and look it up and I'll tell you next class. <laughs> I'm just thinking, oh my God, there's no good answer. Yeah, <laughs> it's so, so tricky. There's yes. just so many exceptions to the rule. It's all exceptions. <laughs> the whole thing is exceptions. It doesn't feel so much like that with the Romance languages. So mm -hmm. with French, Spanish, Italian, it feels like there's more... It, it feels like the, the exceptions are genuinely exceptions. Right, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, mm. but mum, yeah, she she can snap back and forth and um, from both languages and read and write. So, yeah, which I can't do in Tagalog. Mm -hmm. But um, my dad also used to... He said that he learned Hindi as right. a child mm -hmm. and... Um, I think if he wanted to relearn it, it would probably be quite easy for him. Yeah, right. Yeah, once you've got it in there early, at an early age, it's yeah. pretty much always there. It's such a rich linguistic history to draw on if, when you're writing poems. Yep. So it's, much material. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what it feels like. I think that was one of the, or, yeah, one of the reasons why I fell in love with words. Well, thank you so much for introducing me to Fred. Um, no, thank you so much for letting me talk. No worries. About no stuff I don't actually know that much about, but oh, really, really on. enjoy. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm.